my therapist yeah. recently said, uh, yeah. so it was terrible, terrible. Uh, I'm really a podcast now that I'm talking about a therapist, but my therapist said to me, she said, Oh, I, I, um, I do care about poetry. I have three, I have three patients who are poets and I just like went yeah. sick to my stomach. And I was like, if you told me I have three patients who are mechanical engineers, I'd be like, Oh, that's a meaningful statement. Like that's, I understand what that means. You understand what that means. That means something in the world saying I have three patients who are poets. Mm -hmm. It just means like, it just tells you a, like about a certain degree of mental illness among three of your patients. Like that's all it tells you. So I'm curious how you like you, you maybe, you may be more generous because you have a little more distance from it, but you also have so much experience with poets. I'm curious. Does it, does it mean anything? Like if you were to be given a, like a money hall problem where you could either invite to dinner, a perfect stranger and about that person, you knew only that he had spent time in prison. And then another person about whom you knew only that he had, he was a poet. Uh, <laughs> What, what, um, which, which, whom would you rather take to dinner is my question. And, you know, like, I don't, I don't talk about my writing much. Yeah. I, I like, you know, we have, we're starting to make friends with our neighbors. Um, yeah. which is, and, and, you know, it, it's interesting to kind of like reveal layers of yourself and, and it's like, if, if ever it's coming out that someone writes poetry, right we we've established that we're both writers we've established so like yeah. i assume that i i think you have I more have to go on connotation yeah there's a different connotation like i think you're thinking of sort of like uh artiste monkey kind of like um <laughs> like uh someone no, who you... has an elaborate journal then sometimes <laughs> there, <laughs> there are line breaks um yeah and they, I, they, they strategically like, leave no, open this... at cafes and you know I, I, yeah. well, right. You, you, no, but you've identified, I think, like the really the crucial part of this question. Like, this is this is what makes me so. This is what makes me cringe when I hear my therapist say, "Oh, I have three patients who are poets." Is that if the first thing you learn about somebody is that he's a poet, I shouldn't know of that about you yet. Yeah, right. Like, like <laughs> yes. that should like. I'm Steve. I've written a novel. I mean, it just doesn't. <laughs> like, like, I'm sure you have, Steve. I'm I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening, and thanks especially to any of you who've had a chance to tell somebody you like about the show. Please do pass the word along to a select listenership. Keep our ranks highbrow. <laughs> Sorry, no, not highbrow. What is it? What is the defining quality of our ranks? Do we have ranks? Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. This is a this is a fun episode. I, I have a, a, a an old friend and a terrific writer, J.P. Gritton, novelist, short story writer, essayist, the author of Wyoming, which was a which is a short, just deadly, deadly crime novel that is really beautifully written as well. He's got short stories in a number of places. I'm going to put links to all of these online. And an interview I did with him a couple of years ago for Literary Matters, the transcript of it is available. I'll put 
it up on the show notes. We had a, we had a really good, rich, long conversation today about some very hoity-toity things along with some real dumb ones. In any case, uh, this is J.P. Gritton, author of Wyoming and a uh, really just a, a, a delightful uh, person to have a slightly tipsy conversation with. I hope you enjoy it. So we are going to talk about a couple of articles, one much longer than the other. This, this is, um, these are the poems, folks, by David Yezzy from the September 2011 uh, edition of the New Criterion. And then a, a much shorter interview with Matt Johnson called, the, the headline of which is, is All Fiction is Crime Fiction from the April 5th, 2018 issue of Lit Hub. And I forget the names of his interlocutors, but they're the people who usually do the, the podcast there. So um, we talked about doing both of these. We also at some point talked about uh, <laughs> discussing the the HBO Max reality show, F-Boy Island, which is, I can't say it's worth seeing, but I will say there is a thing that it offers that I haven't quite exactly seen elsewhere. And I and while I don't know that there's enough meat to warrant like a... a a thorough discussion it seemed you you recommended it as like worthy of consideration which i think is accurate uh do you want to you want to say a word or two about it before we get into the uh, more serious stuff well it uh, the ending well, so, so like, give, give a quick give a quick word just to, like give people yeah. a sense of the premise what are they dealing well, with the premise is that there's an island of i think it, at the beginning it's 12 men right or is it tw- it's 24 maybe more than that because they eliminate them pretty quickly they do like three yeah, a night right. Right, right. It's okay. a it's a it's a lot of men. Yeah, a lot of men, and then three women, and um, the women are so like half of this group of men are self proclaimed nice guys. Um, so immediately you're probably noticing that totally trustworthy. No, nothing questionable about it. <laughs> right, there's that's sort of on a, the faulty premise that someone is being honest when they call themselves a nice guy. Um, that aside, half half of the self-described nice guys who, um, in addition to being nice, are willing to find a life partner on a reality TV show. Um, uh, then, uh, yeah, some real winners. Um, and then uh, and then the other half are self-described fuckboys. And the and they for some reason though though it's HBO Max and though they have lots of profanity on the show. They they they, they call they always call them right. F boy. Yeah. Is that I, I had I had zero times ever heard the shortening F boy before this show. What was your pre prior understanding of the term fuckboy? My source of information about anything like current or is usually Roshni. And uh okay. and like I I my sense was that it just meant like a guy that um Pulls around a lot, but never wants sort of commit or something. Which all right, which seems to be what they how they use it on the show. That seems to be their intended. Is that not what it means, or is it? Well, no, I think that is how it has been used most recently. The my my experience back in college was that it was it was prison slang that had been adopted into hip hop and was I understood it to be basically like fighting words. Like, like you, if you use that, like you were asking to be 
punched in the face. That it basically, like, uh, fuckboy was originally the term used for people whose, you know, vulnerability or proclivities made them eligible candidates for prison rape. Okay. That was what, that was sort of, it was used, or like, like punk would be a similar term in that context. Yeah. And then it was used later sort of in a more broad way to mean somebody who's sort of ineffectual or a laughing stock or kind of a joke. Uh-huh. And then, and then like weirdly, it suddenly was revived like 10 years after that by suddenly I started hearing it in like the mouths of like sassy white feminists uh-huh. as, as like a general term for a boy you, you give a thumbs down to, which I just thought like having heard its original content or having heard it like its earlier context, yeah. for me, it was like really jarring for me when it became like popular slang. And then by, by the, like, by the time it's an FYI Island, it seems to be almost totally defanged. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I wonder if whoever initially started applying most recently the term fuck boy to somebody who kind of sleeps around and, and right. is like rapidly promiscuous. Like if they knew something of, of the old definition and it, it sort of by way of Kind of it's, like initially it was a initially it had more st- kind of like the term scumbag you know yeah. which, which i believe derives from a used condom um <laughs> where it's like it's, you know a bag full of scum like originally probably hurt a little more than it than it came to later yeah i i mean that that makes sense i mean and definitely like the the purpose of the show or, or i think like if I can talk about a reality show having a message <laughs> or an ethos, like yeah, it's yeah. to say like that, hey, this, 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 like don't, this behavior is toxic. And I mean, it's, oh, uh, total, totally moralizing, totally yeah, moralizing, yeah. completely hypocritical, but, but right. <laughs> relentlessly moralizing. Yeah. Re- yeah. yeah. And, it, and there was, and, and it's that, um, it, it was that kind of obvious same and that the, the endless rehearsal of this, you know, it's bad to do this fellas that it felt like for me as, as, as a writer, like, you know, when you sit down at your computer or whatever, your notebook or whatever, and you have, you know, I got an idea. I got an idea and I I know just how this is going to end. And then when you write the story or, and maybe for poets, it's the same, but when the the story comes out, it's just total garbage, you know, (laughs) um, it's like, the fiction is really, really thin. Um, and I was just reading, Alice McDermott has a great new book on the craft called What About the Baby? Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's great. I'll, I'll lend it to you. But it's... No, no, no. We should buy books. But yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe do lend it to me. But yeah, we, yeah. yeah we should always buy yeah, first, first yeah. copies. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Buy, buy the book. It's definitely worth reading. But there's this eponymous chapter is about this idea of um you know writing with some kind of moral in mind you know i I, i've got a point in mind um and it just doesn't work and i don't know you know i don't know why that is because i you know like or or it doesn't work for me i mean i guess like what orwell knew what animal farm (laughs) like he had an axe to grind and and you know the the he knew what he was was doing but i um yeah though, though it also seems like not a coincidence that that in his two most famous and famously successful like works of didactic satire he is he is working against his own grain right because he was a leftist 
And so it, like, it, yeah. it probably helps to have yeah. a little bit of that tension in the mix right. to begin with. Well, right. And that, I mean, and that's sort of what was so fascinating about watching the end of that show is like, you know, it's wants to sort of convey uh, some message. I don't know what about empowerment or, uh, you know, toxic masculinity or whatever. And inevitably the most compelling actors, the, the most compelling ones are, are these total, you know, toolboxes. But, um, yeah, who, who seem to be doing something that's that they're already more used to doing, right? Which is which is playing, manipulating people, and, and putting on a self conscious yeah. show, and kind of winking at their own shittiness in right. a charming way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I think um, you know the hope was to say, like, in part that such guys can change, but <laughs> this that is not. <laughs> That is not the case, and and I mean, it, yeah, there, it there may, was well, no. It is the case. You're not going to prove it. In a, yeah, well, sure. I mean, particularly given that, like a lot of these people were, were quite, quite, quite young. Uh, sure, yeah, like I believe they can grow up and, and be different people, but like, no, like by the end of the show, it was not. There was, I mean, I would say that the the moral of F Boy Island had to do with the behavior of the contestants. Mm to exactly the same degree that the, the, the moral of squid game did. Like, yeah. like really it's, yeah. it's like, really it's an indictment of the whole show. Not that I have any great faith in my own gaydar or in like, who cares how, who behaves in what way? Like if I had to bet money, I would have bet that a substantial number of the male contestants were attracted to men, which is, fine but like it almost didn't matter it almost didn't disrupt the show at all that they seemed to have no actual sexual interest in the female contestants because it just seemed beside the point that it's all it's all this sort of i mean they were all also say like it is a show never have i seen so many like ripped tone oiled bodies displaying so much flesh with like not a not a ripple of like sexiness, like, like nothing alluring, nothing like genuinely erotic about it. Just like, it was just like watching like, like degendered, you know, mannequins rub up against each other. Yeah. You know? It was horrible. Well, and it, I mean, the, it was a strange thing because it was, you know, it came out right in the middle of COVID and it, and, you know, during COVID, virtually all my conversations with friends or family or whoever are about like, well, what, you know, what shitty TV are you watching right now? And, and, yeah, right. and yeah, yeah, in yeah. the midst of COVID is all these sculpted fake humans, you know, like the, just these Barbies and Kens walking around and not word one about COVID, you know, that the only thing anybody ever really spoke about was like, you know, what's your gen regimen and, like yeah what what quote what are you looking for in a relationship end quote those were that was what virtually every conversation was about um and meanwhile the world was like losing its mind i don't don't know it was yeah oh yeah no i mean i know i mean it was it was meant to be pure pure escapism which is like like as with you know like brady snellis's books like there's no there's no reason that that voyeuristic indulgence can't accompany extreme moralism <laughs> you know like there's there's no book more moralizing than like the rules of attraction yeah. it yeah. it did i mean i kept thinking that the show was 
because partly like, part of what was so annoying about it, and I guess this is it's it, it was almost like being trolled. Like part of what made it continue to be sort of interesting was wait, what are the rules? What is that? What? Yeah. Basically, like you and right. the contestants were all told the same vague information, yeah. which is like right. you could all win money. Also, some of you are explicitly lying, whereas the, the rest of you are pretending not to be lying. And then also <laughs> you're supposed to want to hook up with each other. And that matters. That affects winning the game and the money in some way that literally will not be explained until the last 10 minutes, yeah. at which point we will then still renege on the rules and like change yeah. them. And also like some of you are, are allowed to cheat and like some people are brought in halfway through and they're, there's, you know, like there's no clarity. There's no, yeah. like it is the, it's this, the premise is that it is a, a heavily morally inflected meritocracy. Mm. And yet there's nothing like less morally consistent or less meritocratic than this ridiculous, like, grasping pursuit of some vague, like definitely un, uh, a low-balled amount of cash by the end. I mean, it's like, I mean, and half of them were their profession, their listed occupation was influencer. I mean, it's just like, it just felt like it was too on the nose. Like it was, it was, it was too perfect a satire yeah. of the meritocracy yeah. today. I mean, you were, you were, right. You were, you were the last time we talked about this, but you had said that it, you know, it felt somehow, in a way that's kind of hard to find, resonant with our like whatever particular late stage capitalist moment. Um, oh God! I mean, yeah, it felt like if you're, I mean, I wanted, I like it, to me, it's like if you're a boomer who like really believes in the meritocracy, I just wanna, I just want you to like, Watch I want to like Ludovico technique you this reality series. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pry your eyes open and play Beethoven and make you watch yeah. that. And there was like just the one just heartbreaking exchange toward the, where like one of those somewhat more seemingly genuine, yeah, you know, sentimental connections in the, in the show was a, a conversation between this, this young woman and this guy. And he said, what's your, he, what do you like best about yourself? And, and her response was my ass. And then his response, instead of like, he was like 10 years older, you expect him to have a little more perspective. He, he smiled and said, yeah, mine is either my teeth or my abs. Like Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ! Like this is it. This is that's it. That is, this is, this is the the, the reality show we deserve. Uh, yeah. So so the theoretically, we do have some slightly more slightly meatier stuff to 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 sure. dig into today. Yeah. So do you want to? The Matt Johnson interview is much shorter. What do you? How do you? Do you do you have an order you want to take these in? Because you you had brought up both of them. You know the thing that interests me about what Matt Johnson says is he's, he says like all fiction basically is about it, it's about a, figuring out a culprit or um, that it all kind of works like a, a whodunit. Like um, yeah, you know. he, he 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 draws a distinction historically between pre and post enlightenment right. fiction. Yeah. So do, do you, I don't know if I have I have some some highlighted passages. I don't know if you wanted to. If there's anything that jumped out at you that you wanted to read or how you wanted to. No, no, no. I mean, yeah, that that, um, and I don't know if he's referring. I mean, he, the way he says it in the interview, it it seems like he. This is something. The way I, I don't know exactly how he frames it, but it's it seems like it's something he he had read earlier. Um, yeah, this this is so so this this interview was printed by LitHub, but it is an excerpt from a, a presumably much longer conversation that that was an, an audio conversation. So I don't know. 
there may have been additional context. I'll say, given that this was what they chose to excerpt, I was a little bit befuddled by the editing and let like, if there was a lot more context, then I would have wished that they didn't devote the second half of the piece to the Mueller investigation, yeah. uh, which was a bizarre, I mean, this, as I said, this is printed in, in uh, almost exactly a year before the, the, the final result of the Mueller investigation came out. So it has a, has a definitely a time capsule quality. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, man, look at all these connections of Trump to Russia. And boy, they're really, they're really digging up some gold here. This is good. It's going to be a great payoff when we get to the end of this thing. <laughs> Yeah, but he, I mean, he's, he's, he does have like a, a somewhat compelling premise, as you said. He, I'll, I'll just read from some of the um, beginning. This is Matt, Matt Johnson, who's a novelist and memoirist, uh, I believe. They, they um, I'll, I'll put links to all this in the show notes, obviously. He says, the mystery form is the fundamental structure of contemporary storytelling, and the mystery comes out of the European Enlightenment. And the idea that you can look at chaos and by applying your intellect, you can come to an understanding through reason as opposed to just saying God did it, right? And he, he talks about uh, Poe's Mergers in the Rue Morgue. I know that that story kind of like, it, it launched the genre of the locked room mystery, like that that trope for whatever reason has been, you know, endlessly reiterated. And I, yeah, yeah. you know, whether it's about the Enlightenment or, or, or what, I, I mean, I don't, you know, who knows, maybe. I think what, what just interested me though, is, is that, you know, when we, we were talking about this and since I, you know, moved to North Carolina, I've been working on this mystery novel that I that sort of feels more abundant. But the, the thing, you know, as I've kind of obsessively obsessed over the yeah, genre yeah. is, is that I, there's something about the last few pages of a, of a mystery where you, the bad guy is revealed. the the co- the chain of cause and effect. You you look at it with suddenly very different eyes. That to me feels a lot like hearing a joke. You know, like when when you get to the punchline yeah, of a yeah, joke. Yeah. Matt talks. Matt Johnson talks about like you know you look at chaos and and you use your reason and you can derive meaning from it. Yeah, like the there's, there's an answer that's more than just a shrug. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and you build up to a punchline is, is that I think it's that same sense of chaos. They have a kind of payoff. Yeah. And I think. And, and the, one, of, one of his interlocutors, Vivi Ganeshananthan, says, gives this example of the, which uh, an old Frank Conroy analogy, which is your reader is a person climbing a mountain with a bag and they're right. collecting rocks of information. And if they get to the top and they're carrying rocks they don't need, they feel angry that they've been carrying weight they don't need. Mm-hmm. And she uses, she's referring to that as a kind of an, a, 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 an analogy for the process of giving, giving readers the breadcrumbs they need as a storyteller. How did I'm curious, just cause you've done a lot more, both taken a lot more fiction classes and done a lot more fiction writing. How, what do you, or was that one an analogy you'd already heard before? Or what was your, what's your feeling about that? Yeah. I mean, I, at, at some point, you know, I feel like, you know, sometimes I get really self-conscious when I'm in, the classroom because I, I really you know it feels like I have like half a dozen stock cliches that I just love <laughs> at them like you know right what you know um right. and yeah. one of them is this little parable about the going up the mountain and putting details in your pack um which also seems like it it like like 
mischievously invokes Sisyphus without without, without quite making use of him. Like, yeah. like isn't, is, is like, is, is that the, the, the in, at the end of the Beckett play, you get to the top and you realize <laughs> right. you didn't need any of the rocks, that there is no yeah. mountain actually, it's just yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that, and, and I mean, there are stories that they're, they're really just Beckett shorts, you know, they're not, right. they, yeah, they're yeah. not going nowhere. It's like the Shaggy Dog story, where you like you 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 collect all the rocks, and then you get to the end, and it didn't you didn't matter. It's a, the story is about the bag. And then and then I met my soulmate. You know? <laughs> I was, I was like, gonna say shag, Shaggy Dog stories or like mother in law stories or like like, <laughs> like Christmas Christmas fireside stories. I think the what it speaks to is like is like this idea that details should be curated somehow, and I think like the strictures of an, an audience's attention span in the form of thriller you know Yezzy talks a lot about sonnets and you've got to kind of work whatever meaning you you want to make into the format and you end with this couplet or this you know these, these six lines where you have some kind of turn um and if you don't have it then it's not a poem yeah and i mean i think like the 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 johnson interview and the Yezzy essay have different Givens, like they're different things that go without saying. So I think like what part of what goes without saying in the Matt Johnson interview is that is that the the appeal of the mystery form, uh, whatever its historical origins. And I do think like maybe I think the the Enlightenment argument is interesting, but I also think of something like Oedipus the King, which is like a detective story. Like Oedipus the King right. is basically the outline of every Law and Order episode, right? Uh, so like it's not. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think I'm. I don't. I'm not enough of a scholar to like make a argument about literary history but i think one of the things he, he he takes as a given is that part of the appeal of this form is not just some abstract argument about the nature of the truth but a feeling of satisfaction that we get when we see the pieces come together when we get to the top of the mountain and, and all of the rocks in our bag form some yeah you know complete 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 some puzzle and i think like the the yezi piece is again this is called these are the poems folks it's about 10 years old uh and it's focus so he talks a lot about form and technique but it's the emphasis of the piece is always on the effect mm -hmm. so he's and at some places at some places he he sort of attacks the notion that you should treat jokes or poems like received sort of purely in terms of their received forms because he says that broad, yeah what makes a bad joke is often what makes a bad poem the formal convention is dutifully followed without sufficient innovation or surprise. The received form is not enough. That was the, the line Greg Williamson, an old teacher of mine, used to say was, um, you get no points for doing it right. Yeah. Like, that's what makes you groan. When you hear a joke or a, a you know poem or something that makes you groan, what you're groaning at is like, oh, I see that the structure is complete. Right. It just it sucks to listen to. Like it just, yeah. it just doesn't make me feel anything. Yeah, it's the equivalent of like a dad joke, and and I yeah, I think like um, I don't know. I thank you again for recommending this because I like it helped me name so many of the reasons why I stopped working on the mystery novel. <laughs> and I think what it was, it was some of it was just like you're doing it right, but I don't it still isn't, I want to groan, you know, like the way Yezzy kind of like all the, these things that he names, you know, the play on words, the reverse formula, 
you know, I don't know about exaggeration, but like by association, these are all things that I think they're mysteries. Okay. I hadn't thought of it in terms of mystery, but yeah, there's, there is a, the way I think of it often is that in a, in a joke, as in a poem, you are, you are imbuing words or images with a, with a, a meaning peculiar to this context. So that then when they reappear or they're rearranged later, they, they produce an effect that that same expression would not produce if it mm-hmm. appeared in a vacuum. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, he, he talks a lot about puns in um, yeah. that essay. And I, you know, I was thinking about Devil in a Blue Dress. Have you ever, the Walter Mosley. So one of the, this is a big plot spoiler. And I don't know if that's problematic. And That's fine. We're, okay. We do nothing but spoil this show. <laughs> Yeah. So the, the the PI is charged with tracking down a woman named Daphne de Monet, um, and she's involved with a. It's uh, right after World War II in Los Angeles, and this woman is involved with a mayoral candidate um, from this illustrious family. And Easy Rollins, who's the PI, spends this entire novel trying to track her down. And then over the course of the novel, he, he a few run-ins with this really dangerous guy. And I should explain, so um, Easy Rollins is a black man who's living in Watts. Um, okay. And he has a, a few run-ins with a guy named Frank Green, who's a pretty tough customer who, who was in Watts as well. And in about the last 20 pages of the novel, it is revealed that Daphne de Monet, the this uh, fiance of the mayoral candidate, has another name. I can't remember her actual name, but it's Frank Green's sister. And suddenly you realize that Daphne de Monet is a biracial woman who's been passing as white for the entire for huh. the entirety of the book. And in that sense, like I mean, it's a it's you know. It is a pun in the sense that it means, you know, Daphne de Monet means two things. Um, It can mean Frank Green's sister and it can mean, you know, the mayor's wife. No, what I wonder about, though, is whether this is this has to do with fiction versus poetry. Like it has to do with what's the given because, you know, in, in so Matt Johnson writes prose, writes fiction, you write fiction. And for him. He doesn't bother to say, and when we hear a mystery revealed, it's exciting and satisfying to us mm. because, because I, I mean, I'm assuming because like, well, of course, and like, of course, when you write a story, you want it to be fun to listen to and you want it to like give people a little zing of excitement. And that for you may be more of a given because you work in fiction. It's so not a given in poetry. Like it's so <laughs> not a given among poets. That, like, <laughs> people should care or should like have a reaction or should mm. like take pleasure in listening to a poem. Like just that simple notion that like, oh, when you listen to a poem, you should like it. If it's like yeah. that's, and when you write a poem, you should want, <laughs> like you should try to make people like it. You should try to do a thing that then is enjoyable. That's, that's like a radical proposition. <laughs> and so I think like, that's where for me reading this essay saying it sort of has a double premise. One is like poems are like jokes. And sort of more specifically, like poets should or could slash should learn a lot from comedians or, you know, from the construction of jokes. And he, so the, the, the opening roughly, he says, jokes and poems differ. They generally have disparate aesthetic ends, but in this poems do not necessarily enjoy the upper hand. They may be in fact, at something of a deficit 
With jokes, for example, their success or failure is clear cut. Either they work or they don't. Jokes get tested on an audience, which then votes with either laughter or silence and occasionally derision. Gauging one's response to a poem or other work of art is more difficult. I've talked about this a couple of times in the show before, but like part of what's so beautiful about a comedy club is like you can tell if the material yeah. worked. Yeah. And and with poetry, like not only can you not tell necessarily, but most poets don't seem to even want to tell. And so when I read this essay, for me, like the, the, the screaming headline of this essay is like, hey, let's think about the effect poems have on people. Whereas for yeah. you, I'm what, like, he also talks a lot, or like that premise I just read, or that sort of thesis I just read, he then spends like a long, it's a relatively long essay, he long time breaking all that down. But for you, it could, I, I could very much understand why, like, if all of that stuff goes without saying, like, of course you want your reader to have a reaction. Of course you want your reader to, to feel something then the interesting part of this essay might actually not be that claim, but it might be something more about how he breaks down this pattern of similarities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, I was reading it sort of, I, I mean, with the mind of cracking the code, like, you know, if this, mm. if this wait, is wait, the co- wait, we're cracking, which code, cracking the code the of what? Code of, of the good payoff. Like, I, I, I don't know. Okay. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to keep on talking like a, moron and not really saying anything but i no this is you know, this like, is my goal is to this should be the dumbest poetry podcast uh, okay. available on okay on i have so. you asked the right dude to come talk <laughs> well I, so you know like okay chinatown have you ever you seen chinatown yeah 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 yeah, yeah so like yeah. the ending of that is beautiful like it's an amazing i can't remember the name but john ford right it's john ford plays um the oh yeah i think that's right I believe it's John Ford and his daughter, you know, it, it, it gets revealed that they, he's had like this love child with, you know, his daughter with his, his daughter and the daughter at different points in the movie has been described to the PI as both my daughter and my sister. Right. And you get to the end of the movie and you realize, Oh, she's both. You know, right. My daughter yeah, and my, yeah. and, and again, it, it feels like all this stuff that Yezzy names about the way a joke works. Like, I, I mean, I, it's that's no laughing matter, but I mean, that's another thing that Yezzy talks about is like this, this yeah. relationship between sorrow and and hilarity. But like, yeah, yeah, it's a reversal. It's a surprising reversal. It's a it's a another play on it's a play on words. I mean, it's it's one person who is being two things at once. Right. Yeah. The 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 the, the prince of uh, Corinth is the prince of Thebes. Right. You know, yeah, we thought exactly. that. Yeah. And those kind of reveals, like what you know. Um, yeah, I was reading this essay, sort of thinking, uh, you know. Yeah. So I, I get, yeah, it's funny because all right, I hadn't thought about this. I had. I think I'd thought about it more more the other way around. I thought of the Matt Johnson piece in light of this and not. Not vice versa, but I do. I do think that you know, so part of what Yezzy comes to, he he says later on, is that in in addition to having so many structural similarities beyond structures and techniques, a shared sensibility and psychology inheres between comics and poets. Both are obsessed with mortality, mm-hmm. as Tom Dish and I actually uh, we I talked with Brian recently on this podcast about a Tom Dish short story called the Joycelyn Traegerster. It's a great short story. But he he was a Dish was also a poet. So so Yezzy quotes him here. He says, as Tom Dish, the caustic poet and much missed master of no holds barred hilarity, used to say of light verse, there has to be blood in the grass. Mm. That if with, uh, without a real threat, then it, it, it 
it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's not going to make you laugh as much. It's not going to make you, it's not going to land. I actually had to, I had to have this. So I was rereading this essay today while Josie was sitting, sitting on the couch, cuddling with my, my uh, eight-year-old daughter. And she was reading along with me. I realized which just often many places, not like when we, when I was reading Gezi's uh, uh, explication of death, the whore, it was like, ah, listen, maybe don't read this passage, but she read the, he quotes a Billy Collins poem about, <laughs> oh, uh, Marco Polo. which is, yeah, Marco Polo, which I, I had not remembered either from this essay or from Billy Collins, but it's at least the part he, he quotes. I don't know if it's the whole poem, but um, uh, the, the poem's called Hangover. So he, here's the, at least the part he, he cites. If I were crowned emperor this morning, every child who was playing Marco Polo in the swimming pool of this motel, shouting the name Marco Polo back and forth, Marco Polo, Marco Polo, would be required to read a biography of Marco Polo, a long one with fine print, as well as a history of China and of Venice, the birthplace of the venerated explorer, Marco Polo, Marco Polo, after which each child would be quizzed by me, then executed by drowning, regardless how much they managed to retain about the glorious life and times of Marco Polo, Marco Polo. And Josie definitely, like, I watched her read that and, and like, her face crumple with horror. <laughs> like, this is, like, a thing. Because like, I don't think she even understood that this was a quotation within an essay. It was just like, oh, this is a, my dad is reading this essay about how children in a swimming pool should be executed by drowning. <laughs> Polo. And it was like, I didn't have the, I didn't have the, the bandwidth to say like, let's, let me explain dark humor to you, <laughs> like exaggeration. But yeah, I, I do think that there is something about, I mean, the, 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 the new critics spoke plenty about irony in poetry, but I think even with, even with a mystery, like part of what makes Mergers in the Room work or Chinatown or Oedipus so great as mysteries. And, and, and I, I would say satisfying as mysteries beyond the simple kind of math equation of it is that when the truth is finally revealed, it's so savage mm. in the, I mean, in, in sort of all senses of the word that yeah. it's, it is, it's like being returned to the forest. It's like, it, yeah. it's almost like by having the mystery solved an even greater chaos opens up in front of you. Mm. Like, I mean, cause murder, murder the remorse is a locked room mystery about well, who's doing all this. How is this murderer so brilliantly contriving to do all these things? And it turns out it's a fucking orangutan with a straight razor. <laughs> right. like, yeah. This image of like utter madness, utter insanity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. Like, I can't remember what, what this was, but there were, it were two, I want to say there were comedians and they were doing a kind of ethnographic study of comedy across the world. And what they decided is that humor is about pleasant violation. You know, like being tickled is right. Oh yeah. 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 Like, this, being I don't want like, this, but it's, you know, like, yeah. Like, like I was tickling my daughter the other day. Cause she, she like, she's, she said, if you were not my dad, this would be weird. And I instantly oh, saw tickling. I was like, whoa. <laughs> like, that's very accurate. You're, yeah. You were, you were like, tickling. Because like tickling is all, it's like all these sort of vulnerable spots that it's almost like, yeah. it's like, this is where you wouldn't want a wild animal to tear into you. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, but it's fun because it's safe now. Yeah. Well, or like, what? yeah. I mean, when, like, when you roughhouse with a big dumb dog, you know, it's like, oh, yeah tear my fucking face off like you know like um but it doesn't like it's it's more fun because of that i i the there's that thing that riff he goes on yezzy about how like 
you know, the language with which we describe comedy is all about death. Like I really slayed yeah. tonight. Like they're rolling. Yeah, he in the opens eyes, with like, the, he opens with the quotation from, um, from the onion. Yeah. Stand-up right. comedian, Tony Campanelli confessed Monday to the February 26th killing of 180 comedy club patrons during a performance at crack ups on Royal Oak, man, I killed him. The 33 year old Campanelli told Royal Oak police interrogators. You should have seen them rolling out there. I really knocked them dead. Right. And I, yeah, I mean, I think, um, whatever it is about, Unfortunately, I think fewer and fewer people read poems just for pleasure. That's a, that's an example of uh, the technique Yazzie calls understatement. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, um, but but it, it was like he makes this point that right, it's like it, it's about avoiding emotion. It's about it's a buffering effect. It, it's it's it, they're both totally fraught with emotion and they're kind of about deferring um, uh, emotion. And I I mean. Um, I don't know why I've had such an appetite. Like, you know, if my partner and I, if we can't figure out like what to watch on TV, we'll usually say something like, is there a dumb thriller on HBO yeah. or is there a dumb thriller on Netflix? Like that, that is inevitably going to come out of one of our mouths. And, um, and yeah, I think yeah. it's, it's this, yeah, it's this, this kind of pleasant violation though though there's because you're because you're totally right and joanna and i have exactly the same pattern but what's what's funny is that if you were in a kind of a state of like slightly dissatisfied uncertainty about either like what to watch or even like whether the two of you would want to watch the same thing it's easy to go for a dumb thriller like it's 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 fine it's not hard to be sort of like moderately satisfied by a dumb thriller but what you definitely won't do is is put on a dumb comedy like if if you two of you are feeling a little bit not totally in harmony and yeah. you put on a comedy that's not that funny oh my <laughs> jesus it's so the tension just like spikes through the through the ceiling <laughs> what but i think it, it has to do with that like either avoidance of emotion or revelation of like it's, i mean the worst is of course if one of you finds it very funny <laughs> the, right. other, the other oh. doesn't at all because right. it's just like you're, you're <laughs> not you know yeah, like as plenty of speakers have pointed out, like the one moment you know you, you the audience understands you is when they laugh. Right. And if you don't share that understanding with your, it's like, let's put on a movie we might both not be thrilled by, but not a movie we might both not laugh at. <laughs> That's, um, I like that we've come kind of full circle, like we're, we're back to sort of <laughs> deciding what to watch on TV. Yeah, so so I mean, he just, just to read it, because I, I do think like I've, I've taken so much from this essay over time and like so much of this podcast has been has been like been cribbed from this essay but but he he so also yezi also is a formal poet in the whatever mm-hmm. you know that term is a is a very flawed term but he he tends to write poems in meter and rhyme and and he and so he 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 partly for that reason i think he has a a complaint where he says sonnets must not be filled up or filled in or filled out he says he hates having poems oh here the notion of poetic forms as containers makes me twitch. I immediately think of an airless and inescapable cell. I hear the sound that Ugolino heard <laughs> of the door bolting shut and of his starving children crying, eat us, father. That was, a, that was another line I had to explain to my daughter, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. What is that? What? So that's from the very end of the Inferno. I want to say it's like 32 or so, right, right near the end of the Inferno when he's in the, the river of Cossetus. And I've, it's been ages since I read the Inferno, so I'm so sure I'm getting some of this wrong. But when he's in the river of Cossetus, of course, the, the bottom of, of Dante's hell is not hot, it's cold. 
because the devil's wings are flapping and causing this, this icy wind to blow through it. But it, the, the, the bottom of hell is a frozen river and it's the, 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 the lowest ring is the ring of traitors. And so Ugolino, who was a medieval Italian, oh, I guess he would have been, he had to be medieval or dark age Italian, uh, who, who had betrayed his, his state, I believe, or his, you know, his city. Uh, he was taken as, he was the, the guest of the Archbishop Ruggieri and Ruggieri then violated the, the he betrayed his guest by throwing him in a cell he threw also um, uh, Ugolino's sons in the cell with him and then nailed the door shut. So they were left. I believe Ugolino was blind at that point or had gone blind or had been blinded, but he heard his, his sons crying out in hunger because they were, they were in that cell just sitting and sitting. And when he heard them cry out in hunger, he bit his fingers in rage and they misread his gesture and thought he was hungry. And so they said, oh, well, you're hungry too. So you eat us, father. Then you won't be hungry anymore, and he does like they die first, and though, and then in like the desperation, he actually does eat them before he starves to death himself. And so in hell, he goes down to the Casadas because he's a traitor. He betrayed his country, but Ruggieri, who betrayed his guests, which is even worse, is just in front of him. Their two heads are sticking out of the ice, and so Dante comes along and he sees this. Yeah, like one head chomping into the back of the other head, and so Ugolito is chewing on on uh, Ruggieri's brain for eternity. Um, yeah, so that, yeah, that, that's the, that's the, the, the reference, but he, you know, he, he sort of ends by saying like, it's almost, almost like a plea not to be misunderstood. I think like he, he says, like having given all of these examples of ways in which poems and jokes are technically similar, he says, poems are best understood, not as empty containers, but as rhetorical strategies, they either convince or they don't like jokes. Poems are shaped by timing, repetition, and surprise wielding these elements with precision creates movement. And the force of that movement is conveyed to the seasoned reader by repeated encounters with the poem, each time through the effect of the poem should be palpable. And that I wonder, like there, the distinction there that does seem important is that we will, like the whole reason you say stop me if you've heard this one before is that you don't laugh the same way yeah. at even a funny yeah. joke, you know, as you did the first time you heard it. But there is something a little different about like poems don't have the, don't even good poems don't provoke the same intensity of response as a good joke but maybe partly for that reason, they are more durable. Like you can, you can have a similar response to a poem the second time you hear it. And you may even have more of a response the second or third time you hear it. Whereas it doesn't quite work that way with jokes. Is that? Yeah. What, what, and, then, and then stories and fiction, like you don't read novels yeah, or yeah. even stories as, as much as you read poems because poems are so short for them, or lyric poems. But what is that durability? What's that question of durability? Where's that come? Because I don't know quite what I think of that. Well, I, the I, the thing about the rumorig um, that I had somebody smarter than you know better read either of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, said to me at some point that like the way so Poe understood that um, like after you finish a mystery it's not rewarding to go back i mean it, you know it's like nobody's sitting there rereading whatever i mean agatha christie i mean maybe right. yeah, know, 10 maybe, little indians or yeah yeah like you don't you don't want to you know reread again and again conan doyle like you you, you know who right right, right you know, yeah. if, if character a killed 
character see like it, there's no point in you know waiting through 300 pages and knowing that the whole time right but so poe made all these sort of clever word games inside the stories themselves like if you if you read rue morgue um i mean there are there are a few and this none of this is original this isn't like i just happened to read and pick up on all these clues like this is all uh, jp's original thesis. Right? This is, i couldn't help noticing in 2021. That, um, <laughs> the, the um so clue is uh miss it misspelled like he uses an archaic spelling of clue and like and, for a like a ball of yarn like a ball of yarn and the you know the the ring tang itself is sort of this um man-like beast in the same way that the minotaur is and yeah, um, yeah. you know the the idea is that dupin is following this ariadne's thread to the minotaur's lair and i mean if you look at a, a map of paris right it, i mean that's that's a labyrinth like that yeah, yeah, labyrinthine yeah. total you know the way the arrondissements work it, it's um it, you know so um and then the 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 thing that um, helps Dupin solve the crime is the it's a broken nail, and the French word for nail is clue, C L O U. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I mean, it's um, the the yeah, I, there are some mysteries like I think you can read again and again. Um, like I, you know, I've read Devil in a few times, and I think like the name of the yeah. rose. Um, or any of the Poe Dupin mysteries, but like, yeah, they don't, they tend to wash out. And I, um, yeah, that, that is a good question. I don't, I don't know why that should be exactly. Um, but yeah, well, like what is there, is there a, uh, a matrix of durability <laughs> versus intensity or something? Like, do you, <laughs> right? like, well, is it the degree of like, tickly satisfaction you get or <laughs> well i mean one that's what, it's weird you mentioned this because i so i remember um the kumanyaka poem sunday afternoons were mm, yeah 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 you know like it, the first time i read it um you know i knew i liked it and then um like but I didn't really know what was going on. Like I didn't, the, the little last scene where the kid is backing away from the porch screen. Um, and it, it turns out it's like, if you, if you read the poem enough times, it finally dawns on you. Or if you're like me and you're, you know, you have to have somebody pointed out to you that the kid has just witnessed his, his parents having sex you know, that the first few times I read the poem, I knew I liked it. Like I knew I liked getting to the end of the poem. Um, but then knowing kind of the punchline, like knowing, um, knowing that, that like, this is, here's what's going on. There's really no mystery. Like, um, like I, you know, I usually teach it if I'm, if I, teaching intro to creative write, like I'll usually assign that poem. And I found as, as time has gone on, I get more and more impatient just because I, like we have the same conversation. Like, let me, let me just because I, it's a good poem, but it, it may be one that's not immediately 
familiar to everybody. Let me read it real quickly. Uh, I just so have, it in, have it in their ears. Yeah. Sorry. I just read the mystery for the. Oh no! Well, well, I mean, it's funny because you and I may have sl- actually slightly different uh, philosophies on this question. So I'm, yeah, so I'll, here this this is Sunday afternoons by Yusuf Kamanyaka. They latch the screen doors and pull Venetian blinds, telling us not to leave the yard. But we always got lost among mayhaw and crabapple. Juice spilled from our mouths, and soon we were drunk and brave as birds diving through saw vines. Each nest held three or four speckled eggs, blue as rage. Where did we learn to be so, sorry, where did we learn to be unkind? Where in the power of holding each egg while watching dogs in June dust and heat, or when we followed the hawk's slow, deliberate arc? In the yard, we heard cries fused with gospel on the radio, loud as shattered glass in a Sunday night argument about trust and money. We were born between oh yeah and god damn it. I knew life began where I stood in the dark, looking out into the light, and that sometimes I could see everything through nothing. The backyard trees breathed like a man running from himself as my brothers backed away from the screen door. I knew if I held my right hand above my eyes like a gambler's visor, I could see how their bedroom door halved the dresser mirror like a moon held prisoner in the house. With that line, I was we were born between oh yeah and god damn it. That could be Beckett right there. Mm-hmm. As you said, like it, the the mystery being like, well, the mystery for the kids is like, well, what is it about these specific Sunday afternoons when when this is what we know what we're doing outside, you know, drinking the juice and playing with the bird's eggs and playing these games and, and he has all these comparisons, blue as rage and loud as a Sunday night argument about uh, uh, trust and money. But then the mystery is what are the parents doing that they've sent us out here for? And then they, they stare in through, and of course the, the brothers have a different response than he does. He, the brothers back away and he says, well, let me, let me uh, cover the light so I can let actually get a better out. view. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, yeah. So I don't, huh. All right. So you said you, you get, how do you, so how do your students respond to this poem? I mean, everybody loves it. I mean, it's, you yeah. know, and actually like I was at just hearing you read, there's something about the poem that it, you know, it's, I forget, you forget the vividness of some of those images and, yeah. and um, you know, the, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty the, the garden poem. imagery and how brilliant that is, you know, that is in the context of, they're kind of they're still in the garden they haven't they don't have knowledge of of their own nakedness um and and i yeah, yeah, yeah. you know like there's something um yeah there, there's there's some you know to get back to your initial question about like why why does some stuff hold up or stand up after many readings i mean you know when i I mean, I, I'm not a natural poet and I'm, I'm not, you know, if I had my druthers, like, um, I'm not going to just pick up a book of poetry. I mean, maybe I, I do. Right. I, I like to, um, like, <laughs> is that because you don't have your druthers? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, it, I guess it's about, like, I mean, I read, I, what I was going to say is I read the same people over and over, you know, like I, I read yeah, yeah, Dickey yeah. and I don't, you know, I read Dennis Johnson and I, um, that's you know, Dennis, did, 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 did he write poetry? Yeah, I didn't know Johnson wrote poetry. Yeah, yeah, oh. 
Yeah. I mean, it um, makes sense from what I've read of his fiction, but yeah. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I, um, but I'll also say like, you know, I, you know, there, there's something um, about a poem like the Kaminyaka that just, it's still, you know, every once in a while you, you still kind of want to look it up and check it out. My, my students, yeah, like they usually um, are over the moon for this poem. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is, as you said, it's just really sensorily vivid. And whether you, whether you read everything, the, whether you read between the lines, everything that's there, it's, it is, um, as, as Stephen Dunn said, of, of, uh, or as Billy Collins said of Stephen Dunn, you, you, you might not know where you're going, but you always know where you are and, mm -hmm. and where you are in a Komenyaka poem tends to be somewhere at least pretty, pretty interesting to be. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think I have almost maybe your, your, my, my strategy with poetry with reading poetry or presenting poetry or teaching poetry is, is, is often sort of like the opposite of, of the, what, what you do with jokes or with mystery stories, which is that I feel like I, I feel almost obliged to, to give a con like to, to not necessarily explain it, but to give the listeners or readers as much as possible mm. beforehand yeah. because it's, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, as you know, William said, it's, it's hard to get the news from poetry. I have such a hard time, especially hearing them aloud, following them straight through yeah, that I feel like I want to give yeah. the reader as much as possible so that, so that you can sort of feel the effect of that right. movement, that mechanical falling into place. Uh, whereas, and I think I like, I had teachers in school who taught them the way you would teach mystery stories where we were sort of, we were the detectives I called upon it. to solve the yeah. mystery. And I, I, yeah. I, th I think like there are people who are really good at that. I, I would actually, some of them were my friends in school. I'm just terrible at that. I'm, yeah. I'm terrible at, at, uh, at solving the mystery of a poem, uh, straight, straight through. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think there is, um, you know, there's a parallel, like, you know, it's part of probably part of why I don't write poetry. Um, like there's a parallel, I think to reading, poetry for what I tend to read it for, which is like, you know, I, my decoder, I'm using my decoder ring to, um, you know, to solve the poem. And, and, and I don't yeah, yeah, know yeah. that that kind of sterilizes. Um, I, I mean, if it, if it weren't a mystery, it wouldn't need to be a poem. Um, but I, if it weren't yeah, a mystery, it wouldn't need to be a poem. I, I mean, in the sense that like, you know, when I, what brings me to the page is usually like, I'm trying to put my finger on something that you can't, you can't really put your finger on. Um, or, or what brings you to the page as a reader or writer? As a writer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I mean, again, I wonder, I wonder about how much of this is just a difference in givens because part of what I really like about this essay, and I do, I just think this is like, if you, if you like reading or writing poems that, I mean, you just, it's such a, good essay because even if it doesn't teach you anything really new you it will, it will be so gratifying to read <laughs> does someone just say this shit but part of what i really enjoy about it is that like in school i took you know poetry classes or like the, the just the dread term from elementary school or middle school of a, a poetry unit 
we're doing we're doing our poetry unit this month it's just like <laughs> it's like a just like a really good way to guarantee that you're you're gonna you're gonna have, you're gonna come away liking poetry less but you like part like we definitely spent a lot of time looking at like memorizing poetic techniques yeah in poetic terms but part of what yezi does here which is just so simple is is to say like oh yeah here are some poetic techniques but they are poetic techniques because they produce certain effects like that, like that's what they're there for. They're not, not there to be techniques. They're there to produce an effect on the reader. Yeah. And that, that's, that's sort of the, the, the argument of the whole piece. But again, I'm reading it with, with my, well, with my givens. It, which is interesting. Cause I mean, it, it like, I don't, um, it, it's part of what you're saying that, and I mean, now that I'm kind of hearing it and, and sort of what you take away from it, um, in the passages that you tended to kind of focus on and, and be interested in, um, that Yezi is like telling poets, don't be boring. Like, don't, don't. Um, oh my God, yeah. You, know, you got it. Oh my God. Like, all the words he, you know, he's, he's careful to say, like, poems are performed for an audience. Um, yeah, that that is a revolutionary statement in like, <laughs> contemporary American poetry. No, it is like that's yeah. that's a. I mean, you you go like, like I'll tell you what. Like, listen to any other fucking poetry, but not any other. But, like, listen to most poetry writers. Listen to most lectures about poetry. Most interviews about poetry. Most pieces of criticism. Most like there's almost no discussion of the actual feeling that the reader has when reading the book. Yeah. yeah, it's almost all bird's eye analysis or theory or uh you know a, per, a, a i mean biography of the of the poet or some sort of you know reflection on personal experience or political implications and again like with with you know we were talking about writing you know didactic or, uh, stories or, or poems or having a moral in mind and it, like it is taken weirdly as a given that it is possible to teach a lesson with poetry mm-hmm. like people talk about the importance of of like of like you know it's it's really important that we we you know we we teach people things we let them know we we can't ignore the important issues and we need to you know get this it's like it's taken as a given that it's possible to do that mm-hmm. like first it's taken as a given that you know the right answer and second it's taken as a given that you can write a poem that will teach people the right answer yeah like both of those are fucking insane beliefs yeah but what is possible is you can make someone feel something with a poem if you're yeah. Well, I mean, and that's I, like I remember, uh, it, you know, like when I part of why my poetry unit <laughs> tends to be pretty short is like I don't. You, you, and we should really say you, you teach you teach a class on cre- creative writing, and it, it covers fiction, poetry, yeah, and nonfiction. Like, or I mean, what, the, you, what is the more what I do is I so it's I'm teaching creative writing, but we're focusing almost exclusively on narrative. I mean, and sure. we cover yeah. a lot of poems. I mean, we, um, you know, we do a lot of poetry, I guess, in the sense that every week we read some poetry. Um, but, sure. yeah, you know, yeah. honestly, a lot of it is, um, well, I don't want to part, like, you're trying, you're trying to figure out who to throw under the bus <laughs> well no, i mean i guess just some of it is like you know these are the people i like and admire and some of it is like here it's about assignments i've 
design where they're responding to these poems you know so it's like sure sure um, yeah, yeah. and it, the reason that i do that partly is because i don't i don't know what to say about poems like i don't know yeah, yeah. It, when i read sea change which i love like i love the jory graham i, I love sea change um I, thought I've, was, I don't know that i i don't know that i know that I, i've read very little jory graham i mean it's a it's a it's kind of um it's aptly titled in the sense that it kind of just washes over you <laughs> and i and i and like it in, in an amazing way like I, I loved i loved doing it but i remember teaching um i remember teaching or we it was the book we were going to talk about one week and i remember somebody laughing in the middle of something that i was saying and i no doubt it was like kind of <laughs> i mean and they didn't mean it in a bad way no doubt what i was saying didn't make any sense and it was like totally incoherent because i again i'm just not equipped to have these conversations i'm not equipped to have, talk about poetry um but I, I remember the student laughing and just saying what are we talking about and I, it was such an honest moment where it was like, I mean, it wasn't, she, I don't think she meant it. She didn't mean it like, you know, I think she- No, 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 it was, it was that it, that it was an honest question is what makes yeah. it so funny. I mean, right. I, 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 you know, it was, I don't think she was signaling like, I hate, maybe she was, maybe she disliked the class. Um, no, no, because but, I think if she were, if she were trying to show that she were smarter than yeah. you or the other people, she would pretend to understand and, pre right. and say something smart that would be confusing to other people. Well, saying I, what are we talking about is is like that's a that's an admission of like your your own limitations. Like I don't follow. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was um, it, it was a I had sort of come to the text like I knew I wanted to do a little bit of environmental environmentalist poetry or, or i guess you know okay. something um oriented toward um nature yeah and it, you know i mean i i don't know you know it, it's i sound like an idiot when i say like joygram sea change is about but uh sure, yeah, yeah, but yeah. i'm gonna go ahead and say uh, i think yeah yeah go for it about it's about change and i knew i wanted to text sorry you sorry your um, your uh, your audio clip so just say that sentence again if you will I, I read it as sort of being about climate change and yeah, yeah okay um, I, don't, I don't even remember how we we tackled the text but i you know we were we were just having completing a series of sort of half sentences you know like um sure. like we were nobody was really saying anything and then just you know shelby just kind of bust out laughing and it, was, it was a really honest moment and i um yeah, I don't, I don't know how you teach a book like that, but I mean, part of what makes you at least somewhat qualified to teach poetry is is be is being aware of your limitations in teaching poetry, and I think like the the if you enjoy things and you bring those things in, like you know if if I were to make some sort of you know universal law for the teaching of poetry, I would just say leave them wanting more. Like don't like you don't need to teach all the poetry in the world. You you should focus on what you know best and what you like best, but. Yeah, like if you introduce them to some things and then talk about them in a way that's like is cool and interesting and then like they'll go 
that's like any fucking college class is like really the class begins when you go start looking at stuff on your own afterward. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like if, leave them wanting more and that, that's all that I think that's the, that's all you really need to do. Mm-hmm. And, and I think like if you, if you're like what they're coming away with is a sense that you're interested in this and you care about it and you think about it and you do not believe that you have given them the conclusive answer to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's the thing is like when, when you get a, a totally authoritative lecture on a poem, what can sometimes happen is it can, it can sort of put a lid on it and shut it down mm. so that like whatever other things you might think, whatever you might think when you return to it, or you might not even bother to return to it because you already know the whole lesson of it. You know, I think yeah. being left with a sense of, of, you know, there being more there to find if you were to return to it is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes it, well, yeah, I, I, think that you can stuff can start to feel a little stale um not just in the classroom but you know in, in your own reading like i i oh, reread, God, yeah. um i reread the the border trilogy just because it's part of i've been working on this essay about growing up in the west um huh. I, I i knew i wanted to I, i've known i wanted to return to the border trilogy at some point um but there was there was a weird thing happening it was like like reading those books back to back to back like little you know mccarthyan sentences would start to slip in into like the most inappropriate moment you know it's like (laughs) intimate marital conversations yeah (laughs) right yeah right (laughs) um you know paragraph long descriptions of you know a a gas station restroom uh you know like it's not it's not it's not always necessary to do that and i um yeah I, i think that you know the the will to explain something can really, um, it can really kill a conversation. So you are a, you write fiction, you are sort of interestingly, you're like, you, you combine a really, what I think of as being like a fairly romantic personal attitude toward writing fiction. Like you write everything longhand, you, you, you devote these serious, you know, chunks of time to it. It's this, it is this like, it's a profession. It's also like a very serious vocation for you. Uh, and though I've, I've started to hear the word vocation used to mean avocation, which is a bizarre thing. Mm. Like I've heard people use the word vocation to mean hobby rather than calling, which seems strange, but I mean it in the sense of calling you, you have a, you know, you care a great deal about language. You, you really, you really labor over sentences to try to get them just so, and you write an enormous amount of then you, you trim it back. So in some ways, like you are, you have a, a poetic sen- sensibility or attitude toward uh, writing, but you also are really interested in like excitement and plot and story and propulsion and violence. And, and like your stories tend to be like gritty and exciting and not at all, not humdrum and not navel gazing. Uh, so I, I'm I'm interested in your particular attitude or, or perspective on poets because you have a lot of experience with poets. I was going to say like you, so I met you in grad school. We didn't quite overlap, but we were there at the same time or roughly at the same time. And you 
you roomed with at least two other poets for a while. And then I think more, cause you didn't, you live on that house in, in that house in St. Paul for a while or somewhere the, where you had like a bunch of other roommates who were. Oh, well, yeah, I, um, well, I, I ended up, I guess kind of right. You mean Lauren, Israel and Jeff and. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, right. Yeah. 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 So you, yeah, you, you've, you've had a number of different roommates who were, poets in Baltimore. And then you also did a PhD in Houston and had, I don't know what your roommate situation was, but like, you've had a lot of close up exposure to poets. You've, you've taken a lot of, and you've taken classes both like in, in grad school, even you had to take some poetry classes. You've had uh, at least one ex who was a poet. You've, you've like spent a lot of time, time and like personal time with poets. Do you have any any short like uh, uh, summaries or even sets of warning for those who might spend time with poets in the future? Is it, is it, uh... I mean, the first thing I'm, I think that is interesting about poets is they're usually more attractive than fiction writers. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I have, sorry, sorry. I, I banged my, my audio. Would you say that? <laughs> say that? No, I, <laughs> well, it, it's just an interesting thing. I don't know. I'm interested because I, I had a spiel about this on the podcast at one point, but, I, but I, I'm glad that you haven't heard it because I want to hear your spiel. I want to hear your take on what this okay. is. Okay. I just, um, well, they're usually, okay. It, so it's it's interesting because, yeah, the, I, I, the first thing I'll say is that they're definitely better dressed. Um, <laughs> like I, I think like <laughs> there's something about um, fiction that, it just invites a certain amount of schlubbiness i think <laughs> like i'm always the worst dressed person in the room <laughs> you know like I, is this, is this fiction writing or is this you is this, is this coloradans or is this I, that might like be in a, yeah i may be in a room full of poets you will be the worst dressed <laughs> uh, yeah i that might be part of it is um the, the town I grew up in, it, it, uh, at some point it was voted worst dress place. And, and I, <laughs> like, um, I, you feel, you feel more at ease in the company of fiction writers is what you're saying. Yeah, like, I, I, you know, right. Aesthetically. When I think about poets, like, you know, it's, they're usually doing the thing that I wish I could say I had done last weekend. You know, like, what did you do this weekend? I made a cool thing out of a refrigerator box and I was up till four talking about, you know, whatever, Karl Marx. I mean, the, the these are not things I do. Like, yeah. I watch Netflix and poets combine the, the two qualities of obvious bad bad judgment because they become poets yeah, right. with lots yeah. of spare time because poetry doesn't take that long to write so like whereas whereas fiction writers are like laboring for many hours yeah. a day over uh-huh. these walls of prose fiction poets kind of knock stuff out and then they just get drunk and, and go get into trouble and have interesting <laughs> stories <laughs> so they have some anecdotes and i am there. in the wrong line of work yeah I <laughs> line of work i think is the, the, is the problem <laughs> right yeah that's i i was doomed from the start yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, that it is funny you say that because I I was just talking to a buddy of mine, also a fiction writer, and um, you know, saying like I, I, it's easy to kind of um, when you when you talk about like when a project we were talking about when projects start to feel like, you know, maybe I should walk away, 
And it's easy to, you know, like I kind of distrust that because I think at the end of the day, it's like, it's like a job, you know, like I, you, you distrust the feeling that you need to walk away. Yeah. Like, or we're yeah. talking about it in terms of emotion, like, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, like, oh, this, the, the book just wasn't feeling right. And I, right, I, right, I right, right. like, I know that feeling, but if I abandon every project, like that at some point didn't feel, you know, quote, right. Like, I, yeah. I don't think anybody would write anything. Anything that's long enough, at some point you're going to lose. Yeah, hope gonna feel and then you have yeah. to, you have to come through that period. Yeah, exactly. But at some point, really, it just doesn't feel right. You know, I right, think at yeah, some point yeah. that there's just something in the juju that is yeah. not, not going to be worked through, not going to be worked around. And I, I, I don't know, you know, like, I think part of what I like about, you know, some of my, you know, best friends are poets and my ex-partner was a poet. I think like some of it is like, kind of like being in touch with people that are constant. It seems to me are constantly in touch with um, with their feelings with their <laughs> is that well, what no, I'm because, trying because to part, say like, it might be I hate that that's no no but I think that I think part, part of what you're getting at is like what you're saying basically is that and I think there's truth to this that like poets are emotional diabetics right like like fiction writers can have a tolerance for like boredom and distress and like hopelessness <laughs> like they can kind of push through with poets like as soon as they lose that initial erotic tickle of interest they're like fuck this and move on uh so so yeah that's like uh another reason that poets could be like fun interesting people to hang out with that you then also wouldn't want to like marry say. yeah i mean i you know i yeah i live with poets and for longer than a year and it was it was fun and i i miss those days but my my wife is in public health and that your 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 wonderful brilliant delightful wife who's who's totally stable and reliable is, right. works in the healthcare yeah. industry yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so i'm curious also your you know you've you've been in school and been teaching school for a long time what were your how did you encounter poetry as a student like did you have a lot of good experiences with it cuz i like i feel like most people's experience encountering poetry in the classroom is is bad. Yeah. So how, how was it for you? To read published poetry or to, to try to write it? Oh, both. Did I didn't realize you did like poetry writing classes. So I went to an alternative high school. Um, I did too. I did too. Yeah. 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 So I, there was a poetry workshop that also I seem to remember featured yoga somehow. And I, uh, <laughs> Fuck. I, I was, no, it was actually a great class. Like, I, think, I feel like that's disrespectful um, toward yoga. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I remember at some point, so I went to this, I went to school with a kid who was actually really talented hip hop artist, And we got to be friends in this poetry class that involved yoga or may or may not have involved yoga. I think it involved yoga. And at one point the teacher was like, get the thing you're most proud of and you know whatever you've written in this class that you're happiest with and we're I, I brought some sidewalk chalk and we're gonna write it outside and write like write them on the sidewalk and I had written a poem 
Like I had stayed for a very short time in France and at that time in my life thought that that was pretty. I, the poem had a line of, I want to say it, it, it had, well, I, I don't want to say, I'm embarrassed to say it featured a line written in the French. And oh, good. Right. <laughs> was it original or was it a quotation? No, it was like some phrase. It was like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it was like, you know, probably something I'd overheard that like, while while fighting over the PlayStation remote with my <laughs> brother, which is pretty much all I did in France, like that and, <laughs> that and fucking table tennis. At the, like, I'm at the a, Paris don't... McDonald's, you heard, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> like, um, sandwich de jambon. Um, like, it was, it, I mean, it was probably that, I mean, I'm being, I'm joking, but it was probably, in hindsight, it was probably that banal and stupid. And yeah. um, Devin uh, saw this kid who's like had this kind of amazing career, even at that point as a lyricist. And um, the Devin saw the line or Devin saw the poem, he's like, <laughs> like, <laughs> did, like, did like, like repeated it aloud and then was like, oh yeah, like, kind of made fun of it. And that, which I, the terrible like, thing about sidewalk chalk is like, yeah, sidewalk chalk erases over time, but in the moment after you've written oh. it, there's no way to get it off. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, like, it's like right. brutally like, permanent right there in that moment. Right. Would that I had had a, some rubbing out hot yeah. water. Yeah. Like, I mean, it just, and I just remember like, you know, and I, the funny thing is I kept, you know, I kept writing poetry. Um, and then at some point I just realized that like, I mean, I, it, it might've been different if somebody had talked to me about form, honestly, like if, if somebody had said like, you can't just write whatever bullshit comes to your mind. Like, you know, um, you, yeah. you know it, there's no reason to break on school bus as you have done here. I mean, that like, I couldn't, there was something about the, the, the ability to write any old bullshit. Right. that I started to realize like I wasn't writing anything at all. Um, and so, oh, yeah. uh, I, you know, and the, yeah, encountering it in class, I, yeah, I just, I, I had a vague sense that grew sharper and more definite that I don't understand, like, I, I know I admire this art, I know yeah. I respect, I have tremendous respect for it, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was saying I, I have tremendous appreciation for the form, for, like, for the, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I know I like it, but I don't, it's like Pootie Tang, like, I know what you're saying, but I don't know what you mean. And like, um, you know, that's sort of, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we probably hit like our education in poetry was probably like right at like peak poetry is what you make it like peak, like yeah. you can write anything and it's, a yeah. there are no, there are no rules in poetry. Right. I feel like that probably was never as dominant as it before or since like we were receiving our primary and secondary education right. yeah <laughs> you know it's just such 
And you, it tells you like that tells that's like, it just demonstrates right there. Again, it's not that there are rules. It's not that there's a God of poetry. Who's going to throw a lightning bolt at you. It's just that if that's what you're teaching people, if that's what you're teaching kids, especially about poetry, you're not teaching them anything. If anything, you're teaching them, uh, this is bullshit. Forget about it. Right. Like, don't like you, you don't get anything from that. It does. That's not actually, I think it's meant to be generous, but it's not actually a gift of anything. Yeah. Like, yeah. What do you, what do you, what do you take away when somebody tells you that? And then you spend a semester writing down your dumb 13 year old thoughts you right. know, every day. Like, what do you, what do you get out of that? I know. I, I mean, and I, the weird thing though, is like, you know, I, I have an image of myself on a bus in Seattle scribbling away in a notebook. And I know it's all idiotic. Like I, I'm, I don't need to look at the old notebook. I know there's nothing worth salvaging. Like sure. um, how much of that was necessary to get to a point where it's not all bullet. Um, right. Well, I mean, but this, that's, that's then the question is like, it, no matter what, no matter what you write, no matter how you are taught, you're going to spend a long time writing pure garbage before you begin to write occasional good stuff. You know, we all can then continue to write garbage for the rest of our lives, but like you'll have like some bright spots and it takes a lot, a lot of garbage before you get to the first bright spots. But yeah. I guess then the question is like, are there, I, I fear that the way we were taught poetry, and not in all cases, but like by some of our teachers and like the way many people are taught poetry, there's not much, like you're not writing in such a way that you're slowly building yourself up out of the mire. Like you're just plowing through the sludge indefinitely. Like you're not actually making, you're just continuing to churn stuff out and say, good enough. There's, there's no rules. Poetry is what you make it. Yeah. Good enough. What's the yeah. up here? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there was a time um, on the road, I, you know, I grew up in a town where that was sort of, you know, right after the Bible and <laughs> the Bible on the road, right. And the constitution, right. Or the, the foundational text. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think there's a, there's an attitude toward poetry that we got a really really strong dose of growing up that is that doesn't result in any thing of value like if if mm -hmm. we were afraid i'm going to talk a little bit on another episode but like i, I rewatched dead poet society recently and it see like it conflates like the most obnoxious quantitative kind of scholarship with the idea that there's any such thing as even like a rule of thumb in poetry Right. Like yeah. not, not even like, right. not like rules, like there's somebody punishing you. It's like rules, like, Oh, I, this seems to work. <laughs> right. Hey, this is cool. Worth trying. It's worth trying this. Right. And, and the, you know, if you were to take, I mean, I think like that was, and that was an 89 and it did feel like, you know, the, the notion that there is anything at all that you could even teach about poetry. Cause it, you know, as soon as you teach anything other than this is great and this is great and this is great. And yeah. that's all great. Anything other than that seems too much like a rule. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will just reiterate what I said earlier, which is like, po poets are usually way more fun to hang out with. They, they're, they like to party. They usually, you know, they have interesting stories. They, uh, they, they well, they're way more fun to hang out with. Yourself, you know, yeah. all good things about them. Right, right up until they ask you to read their poems. 
<laughs> well, no, and in, in my in my case, I'm lucky enough that like usually that's actually pretty fun. Um, well, all right, you have a, a a sunnier and warmer and more generous uh, outlook <laughs> on the world. But thank you for coming on to talk about you know some serious and some dumb silly things with me. No, this was this was fun, man. That was my conversation with J.P. Gritton, again, the author of Wyoming. I will have links to all of his stuff in the show notes. You can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. (laughs) 